Doc Fermento Discovers the World Episode 50 with Paul Gemini, author of The Perfect Health Diet I am Brian Davis. This is my show. My effort here is to discover the work of geeks, gurus and experimenters. We cover many topics and often return to the idea of an ancestral or evolutionary approach to diet and perhaps living itself. Paul is here to tell us about his new book, and I am pleased to say that The Perfect Health Diet is my current top recommendation for anyone attempting to understand what they were meant to eat. I thank you for listening, I sincerely hope you enjoy this show. And a bonus, stick around for the very end and hear me go on a long-winded rant that goes nowhere, because I made an error in that I made an assumption about who we were talking about. It's difficult to describe so listen and, hopefully, you'll have a laugh, at my expense. Here we go. Um, Paul, I, I really, really am thrilled to be talking to you. Um, for one, you kind of you you in in some way really helped my family. <laughs> I'm a father of three small children and a bit of a low carb extremist in a way, or so I discovered after after just um, doing some reading on some of the things you had written on blogs and other places um, about the role of carbohydrates and especially for my three kids. And because of you, what I ended up doing was increasing our overall carb intake and especially that of my children. And I've had fantastic results for them, especially. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, that's one thing I noticed in the in the paleo and low carb movements is that um, a lot of people just assume that what's good for adults is going to be good for kids. And in fact, children need more carbohydrates than adults do. So even if the parents can thrive on a on a low carb or very low carb diet, you know the children will benefit from eating more carbs. And uh, uh, you know, so I think it's easy for people to overlook that. That's uh, exactly the trap I fell into. I mean, I never really even considered it. Like you said, I just thought they were. You know, it's that. It's a common tendency, I guess, to think of kids as just little adults. It's a common problem <laughs> and often it, you know it can be a problem luckily because of the reading i had done in paleo and um you know these other evolutionary based foods when i introduced reintroduced uh, or up the intake of carbs for the kids um at least in my opinion they were the proper carbohydrate sources being yeah. starchy tubers and white rice Right. Yep. So those are our safe starches, and uh, you know they're they're really much healthier than uh, wheat or sugar. You know, than especially the things that you find in most packaged foods in the store. Mm -hmm. Did you coin the term safe starches? Yes, we did. <laughs> That's funny. I love you and hate you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just that. Um, I guess. At around just before the last uh, ancestral health symposium, there was a lot of this 
safe starch debate going around. And so I, I love the fact that you saved me by letting me know that there were safe starches. And then I had to read the word safe starches in quotes for the next year <laughs> on every blog and tweet everywhere when they're just, it's just food. It's just good quality food. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. I was a little surprised that, uh, you know, it became such a hot topic, you know, but I guess uh, so many paleo writers had uh, argued against starches that, uh, you know, people really didn't want to believe that there could be good good starches. Um, you know, it, it's like I said in one, in one post, you know, our safe starches come from a bad family, but they're uh, the good kids in the family. Yeah. So. <laughs> that, that's pretty good. I like that. While we're on the subject, let's just go a little further with it, and then I want to back up and cover some other things. But while we're on safe starches, let's take rice, for example. Um, are, are we classifying this as a grain, or is it a grass? And what makes yeah, it safe? It's a, right. It's a grain. It's, uh, you know, cereals are the... Uh, they're the seeds of grass plants, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, rice is one of those. And, um, you know, so in their natural state, they all have toxins. Um, all grasses are preyed upon by herbivores, you know, which are mammals, and so they have digestive tracts similar to ours. And, you know, so grasses have evolved these toxins that attack mammalian digestive tracts so that that's why they're generally not good for us to eat uh, but when the grasses were evolving these toxins they were evolving them against animals like cows and horses that uh, hadn't mastered the control of fire and uh, you know so they didn't need to make toxins that could survive cooking and uh, and so that's what that's what makes rice safe for us is uh, the toxins in rice in white rice are destroyed in cooking. And, uh, you know, so if you just uh, cook white rice in water the normal way, then uh, it becomes pretty toxin-free hmm. and, uh, and quite safe. Interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. That's, that's funny that um, maybe rice hasn't had a chance to catch up yet. But maybe once it learns it's being cooked, it'll adapt. <laughs> it reminds yeah, me of right. the except that uh, except that we keep growing the rice. The, you know, as long as we keep growing the rice. Oh, that's right. Uh, we have kind of more control, right? Yeah, we have a little control over which which rice strains get to reproduce. Sure. It kind of the reason I thought it popped in my head is just because of Michael Pollan's "The Botany of Desire." Okay, it's, I haven't read that. No, it's one of my favorites for sure. Um, it kind of has the take of um, how plants have manipulated us for their benefit. Corn, potatoes, apples, and um, how, how, how they behaved throughout history to, um, to get the rewards they sought from us. It, it's, very in, it's, it's a lovely take and a um, very informative and a good overall view of what's a peek into what's going on in nature and coming from Michael Pollan, you know, it's very well written and yeah, so no, I can I recommend that one. Hey, so <laughs> I guess you are a, a regular polymath. <laughs> this is, yeah, I was reading your bio and it's incredible. 
So you were going to go to MIT for philosophy and economics, but then ended up getting a degree, a PhD in physics, and went back for four more years of astrophysics. Is that <laughs> is that correct? Uh, yeah, it's pre- it's pretty close. When okay. I, when I uh, went to MIT as a freshman, uh, my thought was that I would I would study philosophy and economics because my biggest interest was you know I felt like the social sciences had gone down a wrong track and you know they'd have to kind of start over from better foundations and uh, you know so I I thought figuring out how to make a better start better foundation for economics and, you know, reconstructing it would be a good, interesting way to make my career. Uh, But then I found I just couldn't stand uh, the undergraduate economics curriculum, so I dropped economics. I did get a degree in philosophy, um, and I wanted to get a second degree, and uh, the thing that seemed most interesting was physics, so I did that. And then I wasn't sure what to do after college, so I decided I'd get a PhD in physics, uh, and then I got a job back here at Harvard uh, doing astrophysics after I got my PhD, and, uh, and I was there for four more years, uh, but I knew I didn't want to do that for my career, and I was still interested in going back to that economics problem, and I felt that the key to really figuring out you know, how to make a uh, a better economics would be understanding entrepreneurship and and I found that you know academia was very stale you know it would get boring after a while Every, everybody does the same thing year after year and uh, you know so I wanted to get into uh, business and an entrepreneurial thing just for curiosity for fun and uh, and hopefully be more dynamic and, and rewarding and that happened to be the time of the internet boom, and so that kind of created an opportunity, an opportunity for me. Um, I hooked up with some uh, Wall Street people to start a, a startup, and uh, uh, so I made the jump um, out of academia into software entrepreneurship. And uh, um, you know, after after doing that for a while, I felt like I'd learned enough about business that I could. Uh, and had figured out some of the key things about economics and social science. and uh, So I decided to quit working full-time, start a little consulting shop to earn money part-time, and spend the rest of the time working at developing my ideas. And uh, so that's what I did starting in the early 2000s, about 10 years ago. And... Uh, and during that period, I was also getting sicker, um, so I had had, you know, some kind of chronic illness, and uh, that kept getting a little worse year after year, and uh, and it started to feel disabling. I was having a very difficult time working productively, and so that's how I ended up getting interested in diet and health, and, hmm. uh, you know, so I ended up uh, sort of about 2005 dropping uh, the social science project temporarily and just saying I need to focus full-time on how to become healthy and that turned you know it took me it took about five years to figure out my own health problems and fix them and uh, and by the time that happened we had learned so much my wife and I 
and it was clear that you know, what we had learned would be useful to a lot of other people. You know, we felt like if it took us five years of really arduous labor and and you know, actually successful insight, uh, and you know, we're very capable scientists, and uh, you know, so if it was that hard for us to figure out our health problems and fix them, you know, then that same sort of work that we had put in would be just about impossible to most people. And so we felt we had an obligation to take what we'd learned and sort of boil it down, make it accessible, uh, make it persuasive, and you know, make it available for other people to use in healing their own health problems. And uh, so that's what led us to write uh, the book, our book, Perfect Health Diet. And uh, so we came out with an original edition in 2010, and uh, uh, that was fairly successful. And uh, you know, hundreds of people reported cures of chronic diseases on it. So it sort of confirmed that we were really on to something. And then uh, the book got picked up by Scribner and has just come out with a new edition. Uh, and I think this new edition is really good. It's, uh, you know, I think it'll help a lot of people and hopefully persuade a lot of people. Uh, you know, and I've been getting a lot of emails from doctors who uh, feel really comfortable with the new edition and are recommending it to their patients. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I think we have a chance to really, you know, get ancestral health, ancestral diet, lifestyle approaches into the into the mainstream here. Yeah. So that <clears throat> right there at the end is exactly what I was probably going to go towards next is this, you do take an evolutionary perspective in the book, right? Yeah, that's right. So, um, you know, so we started trying out a paleo diet and having some good and bad experiences and then, you know, trying to figure out how to refine the paleo diet. And that led us into, you know, my wife is a professional biologist and so the natural place for us to start was just biology. And, you know, so we tried to understand, you know, the, the biology of how do cells in the body react to nutrients, to, you know, to the components of food. And, uh, uh, you know, try to figure out, all right, what was the paleo diet missing? You know, what did it have too much of? You know, how do we really optimize everything? And, uh, you know, so that's what we spent the last seven years doing is figuring out how to tweak uh, ancestral diet. But along the way, uh, we started done a lot of thinking about the science and, you know, how do you justify and explain everything. And, you know, so that gives us a little more perspective. You know, so in doing the, sec- the new edition of the book, you know, we wanted to put everything in context and a, a big picture. And... Uh, um, you know, so looking at things, what we realized is that, you know, the way most dietary experts go about trying to figure out what's the optimal diet, it, it really can't work. You know, there, there's just not enough information to lead them to the proper diet, you know, because their approach treats a human being like a black box. You know, they just look at, all right, you put certain types of food in and then you see what health outcomes come out and you try and figure out the optimal diet from that. Yeah, this kind of reminds me of the shortfalls of like calories in, calories out approach. 
as if the different calories would have no metabolic difference, right? Yeah, that it, yeah, it doesn't necessarily assume that particular uh, problem, you know, which right. is which is a, an erroneous assumption. But um, you know, but the trouble is that there's a lot of there's a lot of problems with that kind of approach that you see in a lot of epidemiological studies and you know prospective cohort studies and clinical trials that. Um, you know, there's a really big parameter space that, in terms of diets. There's so many different foods and nutrients and uh, things that affect things. And there's so many different confounders like lifestyle factors, mm-hmm. which are often correlated with dietary factors. And there's just too much complexity. You can't do enough experiments to resolve everything. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you have another big problem, which is that nearly everyone eats the same way. And, you know, so we talk about, uh, we have half a dozen uh, ways in which um, evolutionary arguments show us what the optimal diet is. And one of them is a chapter on the food reward system of the brain, you know, which evolved in order to try to get us eating uh, a, a healthful diet. And, you know, so foods that were important for our nourishment but were hard to collect uh, we developed an attractive taste for. You know, they're desirable. We feel happy when we eat them. And, um, you know, and those were foods that were hard to collect in the Paleolithic. And so, the, you know, people had to be motivated to go out and get them. And, you know, but what's happened is with our modern technology and agriculture, the very foods that were hard to collect in the Paleolithic are now really easy to collect yeah i was going to say and then you have the double whammy of we reverse engineered from there and food scientists have created hyper ridiculously palatable nearly addictive foods right yeah they figured out how to how to feed that evolved reward system of the brain without actually giving us good health you know so you know whereas if we just eaten Paleolithic foods and we found the tasty Paleolithic foods, then we'd have great health. You know, we can now eat tasty foods that that don't do anything for our health, and uh, and and that's a big problem because, you know, the way people eat, you know, is sort of a compromise between what's available, ex- expensive or cheap, and and what they like. Mm-hmm. And, so we've managed to make a lot of really cheap foods that are rewarding to the brain, and so people eat a lot of them. You know, so basically two-thirds of calories in the American diet are things we forbid in, in our diet, you know, like, like wheat, sugar, and vegetable oil. And, uh, you know, so people, most of the average American's diet is, is unhealthy food. It's, yeah, it's, and it's far, far off. It, it's like you said. If it's two thirds of the foods that we're not, that's that's a that's a serious problem. Yeah, yeah, it is, and uh, and I think it I think it has really big health effects. Mm-hmm. You know, but it's hard for the epidemiologist to uh, to see that it has really negative health effects because everybody's eating nearly the same way. You know, if if you go in the supermarket or you go to fast food restaurants, everything's made with wheat, sugar, and uh, vegetable oil. And, uh, you know, so if, if, you get a, if you get a value meal at McDonald's, 
you know, the French fries are cooked in vegetable oil. The uh, soda is full of sugar, high fructose corn syrup. You know, the, the hamburger has a wheat wheat bun, and uh, uh, you know, even the special sauce has vegetable oil in it. So it's uh, you know, it's hard to avoid these things. Yeah. <clears throat> and then, oh, I want to go in so many directions right now. Let me focus here. <laughs> to try to stay on track there, I kind of understand, well, I, let me rephrase. Fast food is an obvious and evil danger food path in our, in, in our lives, in our lives. But here's, here's what really bugs me, though. It is in the world of scientists and in departments of nutrition. I'm going to use a name, for example, and you don't have to say yay or nay on this man. But when I look at the work, I scratch my head and I get a little angry. It's, it's for instance, Walter Willett. He's the chair of the Department of Nutrition at Harvard. And yet, when I read his food recommendations, they look almost exactly like the FDA's food plate. There's pretty much whole categories of foods missing, like fats, <laughs> He's anti-red meat. And so on one hand, we have the obvious dangers of fast food. You know, any sensible person is not going to feed themselves on that. And yet if I'm going to go to some of the, the most highly educated and respected nutrition professionals in the world, I believe their nutrition advice is flawed. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And in fact, if you look at the USDA food plate and Walter Willett's recommendations, if you look at them in terms of macronutrients, it's really identical to a McDonald's value meal. Um, and, you know, so the only changes they make really are to substitute, uh, you know, sort of uh, isolated macronutrients like high fructose corn syrup for, you know, more whole foods based things like uh, fruit. You know, but the the main macronutrients in fruit are sugar, mm-hmm. and you know similarly they'll they'll replace the white flour wheat with whole wheat products. So they recommend you know like bagels and whole wheat bread. Um, you know, but it's basically it's it's it ends up being exactly the same macronutrient ratios. So I I really want you to I want you to rephrase or I want you to I want people to hear this. I think this is massively important. This underlies the problem beautifully what you were saying there. The food yeah. plate that food plate has the same macronutrient ratios, right? Yes. As a, as a McDonald's or use any brand, insert brand here um value meal. Yeah, that's exactly right. As a supersized value meal, actually. So um, even worse. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, they, they both work out to around uh, 52% carbs, about 33% fat, and 15% protein. And there's, there's a reason for that. You know, I, I mentioned that everybody eats the same, and they eat the way that our food reward system interacts with, you know, the cost of food. And... You know, so given the current costs of different ingredients, the way people want to eat, it, if they just follow their natural innate tastes, 
is toward like a 52% carb, 33% fat, 15% protein diet. Um, and, you know, the USDA, for, for several reasons, you know, they don't really want to buck the way that people actually are eating. Mm-hmm. You know, it's partly because, you know, the way people are actually eating, they're served by an existing agriculture industry, food production industry. So if you go out and say that, you know, people need to radically change the way they're eating, you're saying that, you know, food companies and farmers need to go out of business or change the type of food they're producing. And that wouldn't be popular, you know. So in order to make recommendations, you have to have solid evidence. And they don't have solid evidence because, you know, like I said, it's hard to do, it's hard to get strong results through epidemiology and other uh, approaches if everybody's eating the same way. Hmm. So, um, you know, so they don't, they don't feel comfortable recommending that people change the way they eat. Uh, there's a lot of entrenched interests that, you know, don't want people to change the way they eat. And, uh, you know, so they basically recommend, you know, just slight tweaks to, uh, you know, how people actually eat. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and that's one reason why a lot of these expensive studies, they just shut down, you know, like a 20-year study uh, that tested the eat less, move more advice in weight loss. And, you know, as part of that study, they had a lot of training for how to eat a healthy diet, you know, but they're basically teaching them to eat the USDA food plate, Mm -hmm. which is almost identical to what, you know, the control group is eating, you know. So they have this control group eating one way, and then they have the intervention group eating more or less the same way. Mm -hmm. You know, they just eat like whole wheat bread instead of uh, refined wheat bread. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, but there's not much health difference between those two. And, uh, you know, and the result is there's no significant effect uh, that you can observe between the groups. And, you know, I think they, they spent some ungodly amount of money on this project. Um, you know, so it's a, you know, we really need uh, to take sort of a fresh look and a different approach and, you know, to test diets that really are different, you know, that resemble more our Paleolithic, our ancestral diet. Uh, and then we might see very significant results if we did some of those studies. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> in order to get started in um, choosing a diet or understanding of what we should eat, the th- what really... What really broke it open for me, what really sold it for me in your book, especially, you know, I've reread, I've reread the same things a hundred times in many, many, many books. And this simple chapter on the mammalian diet, um, I thought is one of the more profound things I've read, especially since I have the pre-existing interest in (laughs) the gut, which I'm just nearly obsessed with. Always thinking about. Um, can you help ex- tell the story of the mammalian diet, its variations, but actually why it's very similar? Yeah. Well, I think you know, like you said, that's a really profound chapter and a you know very important scientific point. Uh, and you know, this is one of the surprises to us as as we began researching diet. 
you know, if you have a good theory which can explain the optimal diet for humans, you ought to be able to explain the optimal diet for animals also. And our approach, which is based on biology, you know, so we start looking at cells and think about, you know, what do cells need in order to be properly nourished? And, you know, how does a whole organism, how does that need to be nourished in order to be properly nourished? Well, if you compare the animals, you know, we have very similar cells. They all have the same structure, you know, a lipid membrane with proteins and water. And, uh, um, and if you look at, you know, we all have similar organs, uh, you know, like brains, nerves, blood vessels, muscle, bones, things like that. So, um, you know, so you think all animals would need a very similar diet, you know, but yet animals eat very different foods. You've got herbivores, you've got carnivores, you've got omnivores, you know, so animals have adapted to every different dietary niche, ecological niche. And, you know, so that's kind of a puzzle. How can we share the same biology um, and yet have totally different diets? Mm -hmm. And it turns out when you look at how an animal is structured, every animal needs, you know, pretty much the same nutrients. And that's why breast milk in all mammalian species is essentially the same. So if you compare, you know, human milk to cow's milk to goat's milk to, you know, other mammals' milk, it's very similar. Um, and, you know, milk is basically designed for infants that don't have a really well-developed digestive tract. So they need to get nutrients in pretty much exactly the right ratios that their bodies want to consume so that their digestive tract, you know, which may be immature, doesn't really have to do a lot of work. Um, you know, so breast milk is actually an interesting guide to the optimal uh, human and animal diet. Um, and so it turns out our bodies, our cells in every animal species need essentially the same set of nutrients. And what changes in evolution is not what the set of nutrients that the body needs, it's how the digestive tract works. Mm -hmm. So when animals evolve, evolve to adapt to a different diet, what changes their digestive tract, everything else stays the same. And, uh, you know, so there are very different digestive tracts among different uh, species. And it's like a cow which is eating grass. It has uh, foregut digestive organs like the rumen where it does fermentation of these plants. And the purpose of the fermentation is to destroy all the carbohydrates and turn them into short-chain fatty acids, which can be used to synthesize uh, the macronutrients that the cow really needs. Um, you know, so there's actually, when you look, when you sort of draw the border, instead of you know, like the epidemiology studies do, you, you make a black box and you put the whole person inside. Uh, if you draw the black box between the digestive tract and the body, you know, then what you find is every animal is getting the same nutrients out of their digestive tract and liver. And those nutrients are really a high-fat diet, uh, low-carb, uh, lower-protein. And the, the actual nutrients, regardless of the food that was consumed, whether it be 100% plants, like a hippopotamus diet, or a purely cat carnivorous diet, the nutrient profile, like you said, if you drew a box around the digestive system and the liver, 
those nutrients produced are the same. Yeah, that's right. I think that's fascinating, just fascinating. Yeah, and, uh, you know, so what it looks like is, you know, cells basically evolved about 500 million years ago, this basic structure for multicellular life. Um, and we had a certain structure for cells and organs and how they interacted. And, uh, you know, that really hasn't changed much in 500 million years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so what's evolved are uh, different digestive tracts and different ways of exploiting different ecological niches. Um, so, anyway, uh, yeah, I think that's extremely important. And, uh, you know, one thing it shows is that you can almost as easily study the optimal human diet in a zoo as you can in a, you know, in a hospital or in a, you know, human community. Right. So one of the examples you use in the book, which is funny because I had heard this example previously, I think it was actually in the, the local zoo, the Cleveland Zoo here, was in the gorilla population. So what they tried to do was uh, feed the gorillas what they believed to be the optimum nutrient ratio, but they used all processed foods. Can, basically candy bars for gorillas, right? And yeah. all these gorillas develop heart disease and other diseases, like almost di- like diseases of civilization. Yeah, it's, um, you know, they made, they made a, you know, sort of dumb mistake and, and all the zoos did this. So they just assumed, you know, look, we know gorillas in the wild are eating, you know, yeah, almost entirely a diet of plants. And they just assumed that plants meant carbohydrates. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so they thought we should feed the gorillas a high-carb diet. And, you know, so they got, you know, what was a cheap source of carbohydrates. They basically gave them, you know, biscuits and stuff. Mm-hmm. So it was basically like our junk food diet. And, uh, um, you know, but the trouble was, when you look closely at what gorillas actually eat in the wild, the plants they're eating have very few uh, carb calories. They, in terms of you know digestible carbs like like starch or sugar, uh, instead what they have is a lot of fiber. And what the gorillas do is ferment the fiber in their colons to make short chain fatty acids. You know, so it's pretty much the same strategy as the cows. And all herbivores do this. You know, so every animal that eats you know, lots of plants ends up fermenting most of those plant foods uh, with their bacteria to make short-chain fatty acids that they can use to synthesize fats. And that's what the gorillas do in the wild. And in order to be healthy and avoid cardiovascular disease, they really need a low-carb diet uh, with a lot of fats that they make in their colons. And, uh, you know, so in feeding them these high-carb diets, they were really giving the gorilla's metabolic syndrome. And what they found was when they replaced uh, these biscuits with green leafy vegetables and those kinds of things that have a lot of fiber and hardly any calories, uh, then all of a sudden the gorillas got a lot healthier. And, you know, now humans aren't that good at fermenting fiber, so, you know, you can't eat the 50 pounds of green leafy vegetables a day that gorillas eat. Yeah, this is going to go right into my next, definitely headed in the right direction here. 
since we're not fermentation vessels <laughs> like um, the ruminants or <clears throat> the gorillas where we don't ferment the, the way they do in our digestive tract, we kind of have to break one of Michael Pollan's food rules where he says eat mostly plants. Um, no, you should still eat mostly plants. Um, by caloric, by calorie or weight or how, how yeah, when you by, say that, how does by, this work? By, by, by weight, you eat mostly plants. Okay. Um, so yeah, we do need to eat a high fat diet, Mm -hmm. um, you know, but there are some fatty plants like, uh, coconut milk, um, and avocados, things like that. Nuts, macadamia nuts are great plant food. Um, you know, so you could, you could construct a diet where most of the calories come from plants. That's not necessary. Uh, but any healthy diet will have most of the weight of the food come from plants and the reason is that the healthiest plant foods don't have very many calories right you know they they typically have maybe 200 calories per pound you know whereas an oil may have uh 3600 calories per pound and um and a lot of meat may have a thousand to 1500 calories per pound um so you don't need very many pounds of meat and oil in order to you know become a majority of the calories in a diet uh but you basically need like three pounds of plant food just to get you know even a low carb diet that has a reasonable amount of carbs and that's why we developed this reward in the brain for carbohydrates Mm -hmm. because if you think about these hunter gatherers what they had to do in order to get an appropriate amount of carbohydrates just to get you know 20 or 30 percent of their calories from carbs they had to go gather three pounds of plant foods a day. And in order to do that, they'd have to walk like 10 miles each, mm-hmm. you know, searching. Yeah, I say, without these. agriculture, it sounds almost impossible. Yeah, it's challenging. And, uh, you know, whereas if, if you kill a large animal, you can, you know, you can get meat for 40 people for uh, a few days. So, um you know, so they actually had to be motivated to go out and collect plant foods and get carbohydrates. Um, and, you know, so we have much more of a, you know, sugar taste uh, sweet to us. We don't have the same kind of attraction to uh, protein or to fat. And, uh, and people kind of desire carbs, uh, you know, but I think in the current environment where carbs are so cheap, uh, that's actually on improper motivation. Yeah, and this I I I'm 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 getting the food reward system. It makes some sense, but it causes me some confusion because this turn, then it turns into listen to your body, listen to what your body needs. And well, if you have an addiction or if your brain or metabolism are off, how could you possibly listen to what it's craving. I'm, if you're a drug addict, um, you have, you know, cravings. Um, uh, it always kind of puzzles me, this, the, the food reward system. I guess you have to take the right approach. And when, it, when I see the problem result is I see this repeated constantly in the just eat real food movement is listen to your body. But I don't think most people can. Well, I, 
I, I'm also one of the people who, who gives that advice, and uh, and I think it's good advice. But you do need to guide yourself and exercise some conscious control. So, you know, there are all these junk foods and and so on. You know, I think if you limit yourself to Paleolithic type foods, uh, you know, then your food reward system will guide you pretty well to a healthy. Okay, so plan. if you you have to first eliminate you have a, a, a very narrow selection compared to the foods that are available i know it's a very broad there, there's a lot of foods available in in the paleo diet but i mean considering the food products on the market it's it's a narrow window you know the the, the paleo selection that you can bring into your house throw all the neolithic whatever processed foods out so then within that framework we can then use our own natural food reward system as a guide yeah that's right so yeah you can basically ignore 90 percent of the supermarket and you know shop at the 10 percent that's that's paleo and uh uh and then try to make the tastiest gourmet food that you can and you can be very happy and very healthy it's kind of puzzle it it's a son of a gun because (laughs) ever since we've gone this path I've eaten a lot of different ways. I've been extremely fat-centric, where um, my diet's probably 70% fat at certain points. Other times, I fluctuate, and I'm a salad maniac, almost like just dry, like without even added oils. And I've gone in, in all over the place, but the whole time I've been within that framework where the only foods available to me are, you know, the foods listed in your book, the, the, the recommended foods, they're, you know, paleo. And, and it seems no matter what I do, it works. I yep. know this won't be, this is certainly not the story for most people. Um, or is it? Or are people missing the boat somehow? Yeah. Because there's an awful lot of uh, hand-wringing and debate and near screaming in the community about the proper foods to eat. So, yeah, well, you know, I think a lot of people got to the paleo diet uh, because they had problems with uh, conventional diets. And so, you know, they're already sensitized to the idea that, you know, some, some foods may be very harmful, some foods may be much better. And, uh, you know, and then if they found something that worked for them, even if there may be something else that would work even better, you know, when you struggled and then you found something good, it's, uh, uh, you know, it's very hard to, uh, you know, abandon that approach Mm -hmm. or, uh, you know, keep testing other things that, you know, you worry about. And people come up with theories to you know, rationalize why the thing that works for them is optimal. Right, yeah. right. What worked for you should work for everyone. Yeah. And, uh, and there is a, just a, a, is there like kind of a core difference just between men and women? Especially like macronutrient needs, say carbohydrates, for instance. I notice there's a lot of, you know, like what they might term the low-carb flu or Atkins flu. It's called uh, when a woman kind of goes into a 
paleolithic mode of eating or low carb, high fat, they have this um, pretty profound effect on their body. Which yeah, I've, yeah. All, I've, no, I've all repeatedly noticed more women talking about this than men. Yeah, I think that's true. And, uh, you know, so what I would say is the optimal diet for women and men is pretty similar. Okay. But women are much less able than men to tolerate uh, deviations towards starvation than men are. So, um, you know, if you deprive a man of uh, carbohydrates or, or carbs and protein, uh, you know, he'll tend, to, he'll tend to function okay. If you deprive a woman of carbohydrates, then, uh, you know, she's quite a bit more likely to run into problems. Oh, okay. Could this, and, <clears throat> could this then um, be a bit of a guide as far as uh, your approach as a person's approach towards intermittent fasting? Could this be more beneficial to one sex or the other? Um, or I, I think it's beneficial for both, but I think it's riskier for women. Okay. Um, you know, so, so partly there's a tendency when you do intermittent fasting to reduce calorie intake. And women are more vulnerable to undereating. So, you know, if they, if they undereat, they're much more likely to see negative health effects. Um, you know, men can, they can undereat for a while and then, uh, and then the main effect will be they'll start getting hungry after a while, you know, but they won't, they won't have health disruptions, you know, whereas women will often get uh, amenorrhea, they'll get um, other kinds of things. You've probably heard of the athlete's triad. Um, you know, so if you look at, like, uh, college athletes, mm-hmm. um, you know, so intense exercise is stressful to the body, um, but female athletes are much more likely to get negative health effects from uh, high levels of exercise, you know, like their periods stop, Mm -hmm. you know, they get uh, fatigue or other issues. Um, And, you know, whereas male athletes, you can also, you know, you can detect the effect of the stress and the overtraining on hormones and stuff, but they don't, they don't really feel that much different. You don't get um, a, a huge health effect. Um, you know, so there, there is an athlete's triad for men, you know, but it's a much smaller fraction of athletes, of male athletes develop it than, uh, mm-hmm. than female athletes. And, uh, you know, so that's a, it, it's really, it's the same effect. It's just induced a different way, you know, instead of the stress of under eating and, and fasting, you have the stress of over exercising, over training, um, you know, but they affect the biology of the body in similar ways. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I, can I, while something's on my mind, do we need, is there anything to adjusting carbohydrate intake to activity level? Yeah. Um, so, well, this also depends on what your baseline diet is. So, you know, just in normal living, your body will typically consume 30 to 40 percent of calories as carbohydrates and at moderate intensity exercise you'll typically consume 30 to 40 percent of calories as as glucose and maybe 60 to 70 percent as fat um 
if you're doing less intense exercise, then you know it may be 90, 95% fat, especially if you're a well-trained endurance athlete, and uh, and you know only a small amount of, of carbs, which come out of uh, glycogen stores in the muscle cells, and uh, you know whereas if you're doing things like sprinting, you know you can you can get up to 70, 80% uh, glucose, you know glycogen utilization and only maybe 20% fat utilization. Um, so the reason for that is that uh, um, metabolizing glycogen uses less oxygen to generate a certain amount of muscular force. And so, you know, when you're breathing heavily, then oxygen is scarce and you're going to be using more glycogen. Um, you know, if you're if you're working at a level of activity that doesn't make you breathe hard, you know, then you'll be using primarily fat. And so depending on how intense your exercise is, the, you know, the proportion of carbs you're burning in the exercise could be anywhere from 5% to 80%. And, um, you know, so the, and athletes can burn quite a few calories in intense exercise. So, you know, like a, a competitive runner, uh, you know, running at a fast pace, like a six minute mile can burn a thousand calories an hour. And, uh, you know, so if you're running, uh, you know, like a half marathon or something, mm -hmm. you know, or you're training for a marathon and you're, you're running long distances and you're doing it at you know, kind of a, a high pace, you know, you could burn 400 calories of carbs a day in training and uh, you know so it, 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 it can add up uh, you know I remember Michael Phelps was supposedly eating some huge amount of food you know when he was doing all his swimming training mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know depending on the intensity you know so that can shift the, the carbohydrate fraction now, how much it shifts it, it depends on, you know, your baseline diet. So when people eat these very low-carb diets, uh, you know, then they're under-eating carbs by, you know, maybe 400 or 500 calories a day. Mm -hmm. um, and that's something their body can tolerate. But then if they go out and do intense exercise, you know, then they may be under eating carbs by a thousand calories a day and their bodies just can't make up for it, you know, so they, you know, so for them, they find they have to eat a lot of carbs in order to be able to perform athletically. And for them, it's a huge shift in their diet. Uh, but if they ate more like our diet, you know, where we're trying to meet your body's carb needs through food, you know, we're starting out at like a 30% carb diet. And, you know, most athletes won't you know, they'll still find, you know, like at most a 40% carb diet is enough to meet all of their performance needs. And so it's really a minor tweak in terms of... I was going to say, so then for the majority of the population, with a vast majority, your standard recommendations will fit. Unless you're on some extreme tip, whether it's 100% lethargic or, yeah. or um, a hard-charging, you know like premier athlete or something. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, athletes can pretty much, they can still eat the same types of food, the same mm -hmm. proportions of food. Um, 
you know, whether you're sedentary or training hard. And, uh, you know, STEM makes a lot, a lot easier conceptually. You don't have to come up with a new diet to yeah. be to an athlete. It's funny. I know, you know, for me, in my experience, um, the past few years now, in winter, I'm pretty sedentary uh, for sure, except activity around the house with the children. Um, I don't enjoy winter sports or anything, so I don't really actually get out there and do much. And my diet shifts to huge it's it's fat based basically <laughs> and i mean pretty profoundly my diet is profoundly fat based and for one i get all my produce from a csa community supported agriculture well, there's no produce right now here in cleveland ohio in the dead of winter except very premium microgreens grown in greenhouses and things so i only use the plants as a treat basically so and i do really well in the winter I, I'm probably leaner in the winter than I am in the summer when I'm active. Yeah. I always thought, I just found that to be fascinating, that it, it seems counterintuitive, but... Yeah, yeah. well, um, it, it's maybe not, not that counterintuitive it's i mean it, it it is a complicated phenomenon how body composition changes um you know if you are eating a restrictive diet you know like you take out a category of foods like you know like carbs or plant foods uh you know and then it's not uncommon to lose weight um you know yeah, you, my weight stays the same all year long uh, that's good but the way i look is different um I think I am a little leaner in the winter. I, just maybe, just me, but that's just the way it seems to go for me. Yeah. But right. I also, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm real big into bulletproof coffee. Yeah. I don't use Dave's coffee beans because I'm poor. <laughs> <laughs> but I use his techniques: uh, grass-fed butter, coconut oil, and then I add some spices and. Um, so I do a lot of intermittent fasting, but I'm I'm consume I'm using I'm getting a lot of calories though I'm not I'm not not eating, so it, it's a little different. Yep. Yeah. So, so maybe that's why I get better results in the winter. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure exactly why uh, you get better results. That's interesting. Um, so it's. Do you notice that your strength is is the same? Can you lift as many weights as you can in the summer? Right now, um, I think it's pretty consistent. Um, I don't feel as strong right now because at late summer I was in. I was going to a kettlebell and qigong class regularly. Mm. Just one hour a week. I committed to no more than that as a personal experiment for six months. And at the end of that, I was I was probably stronger than I am now, <clears throat> but um, I I feel like I could jump right back in there, no problem. Yeah, yeah. Well, those are both great sports. You know, we like qigong a lot. That's uh, uh, you know very beneficial for health. I think. I I think it's uh, I it's profound in its simplicity and the results you'll get by learning um, joint mobility. In, in my opinion, I am by f- I'm f- the furthest thing from a physical therapist. I mean, a 
uh, anyone <laughs> that should be coaching anyone in any physical activity, but I think the results are, are profound on the mind and the spirit and the body just from these, the simple movements of Qigong. Yeah, yeah. I it's think a it's... motion meditation, it, you know, that aspect too. Right. Yeah, it's very similar to yoga and tai chi and uh, some other movement uh, uh, disciplines. And uh, it it's very good for you. You know, those are a great complement to more strenuous forms of exercise. And, uh, um, you know, so they really help you... Uh, Cover faster and improve faster. Um, they reduce stress. Uh, you know, improve mobility, like you said. Um, so, so it's really you know one of the things we learned in in writing the book that is that one of the main ways exercise helps us is kind of a circadian rhythm therapy. It's uh, you know we're meant to be doing some activity every day. But it shouldn't be intense and stressful every day, mm-hmm. you know. So probably two days out of three, you should be doing, you know, you should be active. Uh, but it shouldn't be a type of activity that really, you know, wears you down, like uh, intense weightlifting or things mm-hmm. like that. And uh, you know, so things like qigong or tai chi or yoga are really the perfect exercise for those. Uh, kinds of days and uh, you know so to be optimally healthy and optimally fit you really ought to work those types of things into your lifestyle mm-hmm. that's great advice I'm glad you shared that so <clears throat> I know we're up against the hour here um, real quick I want you to just if you could spend a minute or two on what are the most toxic things and that need to go right away before someone gets your book that they should just cut out of their diet? Yeah, I would say number one is any vegetable oil that's high in omega-6 fats. You know, I think omega-6 fats are just uh, uh, terribly damaging mm-hmm. uh, thing. So these are the mazolas, the corn oils, things like that? Yeah, soybean oil, corn oil, Safflower oil, uh, canola oil. Um, so these these are the industrial seed oils that they nicely term vegetable oils. Right? Yeah, that's yeah. right. Okay. Yeah, and uh, you know, so I would put that number one. I'd put uh, either wheat or added sugar. Um, those would be my number two and three. Okay. And uh, you know, added sugar includes high fructose corn syrup. Um, you know, so really the only sugar sources in your diet should be natural whole foods like beets, carrots, fruits, berries, uh, those types of things. Um, you know, maybe some honey. And uh, uh, so those would be my top three okay. things to eliminate. And then probably number four, I would say, is you should eliminate things cooked at very high temperatures. Okay. Um, you know, so harsh cooking methods are a big source of toxins in the diet, and uh, gentle cooking methods really don't produce any toxins. In fact, they destroy toxins. Um, and basically, any method that uses water is a gentle cooking method. Mm. So, boiling, sous vide. Yeah. Yeah. So, soups, stews, uh, those kinds of things. 
you know, so the, the best thing is, is for you to cook at home uh, because, you know, the types of methods used in factories, they're usually dry heat and they're often high temperatures. And so, you know, that's another reason packaged foods tend to be unhealthy. Um, you know, but if you cook at home and you cook with water, uh, you know, then generally your food will be very low in toxins. Hmm, interesting. So you kind of have to not cook like the people on TV. You don't want the giant erupting flames coming off your pan. <laughs> You're not pouring extra virgin olive oil until the smoke point and then putting a piece of meat and searing it till blackened, which is, these are the standard things you see on food TV shows constantly. Yeah, no, you shouldn't blacken meat. Um, if you go barbecue outdoors, you don't want, you know, generate a lot of flame and smoke and, you know, char the surface. You know, it's much better to have medium rare meat than well done uh, meat if you're gonna if you're going to grill. Um, you know, in general, you should learn to like soups and stews and uh, and curries, things like that, because uh, anything cooked in water is going to be low toxicity. Excellent. So the book is Perfect Health Diet. Regain Health and Lose Weight by Eating the Way You Were Meant to Eat. It's now my number one recommend to anyone. It, it, it is fantastic. So, And I really, I really thank you for writing the book. Sorry you had to go through some health crises to get there, but <laughs> to, it's yeah. to our benefit. <laughs> well, thank you, Brian. It, you know, it, it was worth it. You know, there was... There was a long period of time when uh, I was worried and, uh, you know, didn't know that I'd ever get to the other end of the of the tunnel, but uh, we, we did, and I think it was really worth it, and, uh, uh, you know, and I think in some ways, you know, there's a lot of scientists researching how to be healthy and uh, how to eat well, you know, but when you have your own body to do experiments on, and, you know, one advantage of being sick was our bodies are a lot more sensitive than uh, a healthy person. And, uh, mm, yeah. you know, so it's a little easier to do experiments. And, uh, uh, you know, so even though it took us, you know, many years to figure out the answers, so, it, you know, we were able to do lots of experiments and learn a lot of things. So, mm -hmm. um, anyhow, so I hope a lot of people will benefit from our book and uh, I, I think they will. You know, we've had lots of reader success stories. If you, if you go to our website at perfecthealthdiet.com, there's a, a tab for reader results and uh, we have a yeah, lot of... We have of a very lively, active community there. I would highly encourage anyone, if you're skeptical, you know, even, or anyone who's read the book and wants a little more activity, that to definitely check out your site. Yeah, we've got a great community of readers, um, a lot of very intelligent readers, a lot of very, you know, generous and friendly readers who, you know, will help out somebody else. And there's a lot of people who know a lot of things I don't know and have a lot of experience that's very valuable. And, you know, so I'm constantly learning from our readers. And, uh, you know, so it, it is a really good community. And where is that? The perfecthealthdiet.com? Yes, that that's right. Yep. Okay. Excellent. All right. Thank you very much, Brian. Thank you, Paul. This was really great. And I really just a sincere personal thanks. I, 
thoroughly enjoyed the book, and I know it's going to be beneficial um, long-term for me. Although I was mostly dialed in, this just gave me the perfect reassurance on science base, especially talking and communicating with friends who want they want some proof, they want some evidence, they want some science. You know, it, it's really helpful to have to for you to have done that work for me. I don't have the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or the smarts. No, I think it's uh you know, we, we were in science and, uh, you know, practicing scientists tend to be really sp- specialized and, uh, you know, it's very hard for them to develop kind of a big picture view of things. And, you know, whereas a lot of non-scientists, you know, may want that, but they may not be able to navigate the scientific literature and, you know, sort through lots of evidence. And uh, Yeah, yeah, exactly. Hey, Paul, you know, do, you, do you have five more minutes? Yeah, sure. Hey, let's let's move into a little bit of economics. I got that brings up something that's very important to me. It's I'm a big fan of Freakonomics, the guys at Freakonomics, you know, the book. Yeah. Are you familiar with it? Yeah. They do a <clears throat> a takedown of local foods um that is very disheartening to me, and I think it's destructive. I think it's destructive for anyone to have that view of the world. That they that they seem to share um, about the economics of food and that where food comes from, you know, economically, it's it's not important. I think it's one of the it may be the most profoundly important things in the world um, going forward is food and where it comes from and the ecology. And I, I found them. I, I I was very just disappointed and wonder if you had an opinion on it or if you've even read about it, say like from Tyler Cowen or someone. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I think um, economists aren't health experts and uh, you know, even the health experts, you know, they tend to follow other academics. And if, and if you look at the academics who have investigated like organic food and so on, mm-hmm. You know, they have trouble finding clear differences in many cases between organic food and conventionally grown. Right, like the Stanford food. study. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, but you know, so their natural thought is going to be all right. There's no health differences, and so the most important thing is for things to be cheaper because then people, you know, benefit by having. Cheaper food. Cheaper calories. Yeah. But I, I think that's short-sighted for a few reasons. You know, first of all, they, they're just not appreciating the health dif- differences. And um, now there are, some, there are some subtleties in terms of that. You know, I actually think for vegetables, the health differences may not be that great. Um but uh you know there can be a big difference for certain foods um especially you know things like organ meats in animals you know like if you want to eat a liver if you feed an animal a bad diet you know usually one of the first things that happens is it gets fatty liver disease and it you know it gets all this inflammation in its liver and uh and eating all those inflammatory compounds is not necessarily good for us and 
um, you know, the animals can also get infections, and some of those pathogens can infect us also. Um, you know, so especially in animal husbandry, I think there's a big uh, effect from, you know, having good farming practices, and it, it's really valuable to be able to know where your food comes from and, you know, to be able to talk to your to a farmer and, uh, you know, understand. Yeah, and if it's not supported then it won't exist, and it's much harder to have a community. I mean... Right, that's right. I think the the ecology and economy of food is... Uh, it's just... It's looked at completely backwards and upside down, and it's tangled, and... Because it's an exploration... Uh, it's something I'm very into here locally. So just in the area I'm in, say, it's northeast Ohio, it's called. Um, overall, I think we're looking at... 2 million in the greater Cleveland area, 4 million in all of Northeast Ohio. And you're talking about $17 billion spent on food annually. And that's enough money to restructure the local economy if spent correctly. We have a horrific economy here. But all these people need to eat. And I would just see, if we just change the relationship of food dollars and how our food money is spent, we could ab- absolutely revolutionize uh, the local economy. But I don't get much traction when I talk like this. Yeah. Well, I, let me make two points about that. You know, one is if you look back at the Middle Ages, people spent up to 70% of their income on food. You know, so housing was extremely cheap. You know, it would be less than 10% of. Uh, expenditures and uh, you know clothing w- was cheap and, and so on you know the, the expensive thing was food and you know what's happened for us over the last century is food has become really cheap you know now food is only 10% of our expenditures and uh, we spent a lot more money we spend a lot more money on housing now mm-hmm. you know but in fact all of that expenditure on housing, it's not necessarily getting us better houses. Uh, it's, uh, all it's done is drive up the price of housing, and you know, we, we take on bigger mortgages. Um, and, yeah, and as far as shelter goes, a house is a house is a house. Yeah, that's right. So you know, we could equally well have, have cheaper houses and be spending 10% of our income on the same houses, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, everybody would have the same number of houses. And uh, um, and have more money available to spend on food, and I think there's a good chance we're going to go back uh, to something. You know, part of the reason housing prices got bid up is uh, you know credit is a lot is a lot more available, and we've had this growth in in the economy and population, and people were willing to you know think of houses as an investment. Um, we've also had a lot more inflation than they had in, you know, medieval times. So you could buy a house, and you could be pretty confident the price would go up. And you know, so people would try to anticipate that, and they'd spend more on houses. And our housing has gotten expensive, um, you know. But that's not necessarily good for people because, you know, now if you're a young person and you buy an expensive house, you've got a lot of debt, and you spend you know twenty, thirty, forty years paying off that debt. Um, you know, whereas in the Middle Ages, you could you know, you could buy a house with less than one year's income and, uh, 
you know, it would you could live for free. So, um, you know, I think it, it's not that clear that we've really benefited as much from cheaper food as uh, as we might, and I think it's definitely had some negative health effects uh, because. You know, the fact is most consumers have been making their food decisions, you know, based solely on price and taste. Um, and they haven't cared at all about health. And they haven't been aware of, you know, the, the health differences in different food. Mm-hmm. And the consequence of that is that food producers and farmers haven't really given much attention to safety. You know, so if they can add more pesticides and, you know, kill off some pests and produce food more cheaply, uh, you know, then they don't worry too much about whether that's a safety hazard. Uh, You know, and if you look at, uh, for instance, genetically modified foods, all of the research has been going into ways to make the foods express more pesticides, you know, our pesticide resistance genes. Mm Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so that way you can put more toxins on the food or in the food. And there's been essentially no research going into how can we engineer these foods so that they have fewer toxins. Here's exactly. This is my this is one of my uh, biggest things that irks me the most is the argument about GMOs. I don't care if they're better or worse for us as food. What I care about is that they're designed to allow the explicit use of poison, of toxin. That's what they're designed for. Yeah. It's, um... And, and the, it is just going to increase the toxicity of the soil and the entire ecology. That's, to me, the argument. I don't care whether, to be honest, I don't care whether a genetically modified organism is healthier, same, or less. I the reason it's being made is the, is the real evil to me. Um, yeah, well, I, personally, I'm, I'm pretty concerned about the toxicity to, to humans, so... No, I, I, uh, I, I get that, but I mean, what if you destru- the destruction of the Earth, you don't have to worry about humans. We can get pretty sick and reproduce. We yeah. sicken the Earth... The soil, we lose our topsoil. Uh, you're talking about a devastating problem. All right. Yeah, ho- hopefully these, uh, uh, these pesticides aren't damaging the, the topsoil. Um, you know, most of them are designed to work against insects, and uh, insects are pretty successful you know, in terms of ecologic, you know, evolutionarily successful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, type of well uh, the soils we're growing food in are 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 biologically dead they're they're not diverse there there's unless right. you're yeah, that, that's interesting yeah definitely soil needs to have microbes and bacteria and bacteria and so here's my another point of mine i'm on tangents today i'm crazy I believe bacteria are one of the most important aspects in studying nutrition of food I, the reason ruminant, say, red meat is so healthy, one of the reasons that it's so advantageous is the, the production of, of B12, which is a bacterial process. 
that comes in the you know, production of um, the uh, the bacterial action in the fermentation in the animal's gut. That's one of the ways B12 is created. B12 is created by bacteria, and it's essential for humans. So I can see, that's just one example, but um, the bacterial profile of the plants has to be a factor in the health of the animals and humans. And when we're, we're coaxing plants to grow bacterial-free with just N, P, and K, we're not honoring the natural system, and we're going to damage our health and the health of the earth. I know I speak in very blunt, broad strokes, but it's, it's, I'm impassioned about it. Yeah. Yep. Well, definitely, uh, you know, bacteria are extremely important. So, you know, we have all kinds of bacteria all over our skin and our gut and uh, sinuses, airways, and so on. And we're sort of symbiotic with them. You know, they defend us from infectious microbes and they, uh, you know, help generate nutrients for us, help us digest our food. And, uh, uh, you know, so uh, there is a lot of research going on right now. You know, we still don't understand all those microbial populations and how they interact with us. Um, You know, but there's a lot of research going on because everybody's realizing that it's really important to have, you know, a good set of microbes. And they're also realizing, they've done some studies you know, looking at the uh, DNA from bacteria in feces of of people from, you know, 10,000, 20,000 years ago. And it turns out they had, you know, Paleolithic humans had, had very different uh, gut bacteria than, than modern people. Mm-hmm. You know, so something has really changed. Uh, you know, we've lost a lot of species that uh, were apparently beneficial to to us in the paleolithic and and we're learning from studies in animals and and observations of people that the composition of your gut bacteria has a big impact on your health and i'm going to put myself out there and say this will be found to be because of agriculture and the destruction of soil the tilling and the monocropping the history of agriculture is what has led to the basic destruction of the, our, the, our gut biome. And we'll find that the, the, our advances in agriculture have led to our ill health in bacteria, the change in bacterial populations. This will all, this will all connect. We'll all connect all those dots in time. Yeah, well, it's going to be a very interesting, you know, topic, you know, tracing all these uh, influences on our health. Cool. So, hey, um, we wanted, I want to at least mention your, your, your other website, relationshipeconomics.com. Yeah, that's right. So um, I started that, you know, well before I got into the, the diet uh, field. So that was the name I chose for my approach to economics. And, uh, uh, you know, so anyone who wants to know what, what that's about can go visit there. And I'm probably, as soon as we get caught up on our diet stuff, we want to create a cookbook and uh, a few other things to help 
to help people implement oh, that, that. That's great to hear. Good. Yeah. Good. Um, but once all that's done, then I, I plan to uh, return to economics and write up write up my relationship economics. And, okay. Uh, all right. Hey, um, do you know Craig Newmark? Yes, I do. You do. Can you uh, just just as a favor, just tell him that. He needs to remove the anonymity of Craigslist. It needs to be a registered user base, and he needs to develop a a currency, a Craig's buck, call it. He needs to develop an alternative currency, and it needs to be non-anonymous um, transactions on Craigslist. Okay, <laughs> those well, are my two requests. I, unfortunately, the Craig Newmark that I know is a is a different one. The uh, oh. Thought you were referring to the economist. Oh, I'm sorry. No, I was just. Oh, okay. I just saw it was just a, a flash about Craig Newmark, and I thought that was that Craig Newmark. No, the uh, the economist. The, yeah, the one I know is an uh, economist. He's at North Carolina State University. Okay. Well, uh, tell him too. Okay. <laughs> Pass it along. <laughs> um, I just have a, a an interest in e- economies and uh, local economies. So, um. Yeah, just so that people know, if the reading on relationship economics is uh, is very different than in your book. Anybody can read your book. I don't know if anybody can read the relationship economics site. Well, when, I hope when I write a book on it, then it'll yeah, then answer. you'll get to that. Right, right. Hey, and thanks for the way you organized the book. Just so people know, it's um, highly readable, and yet you've included little sections, little um, frames called PhD. And those are a little more um, heavy on the science. So that was really cool. Yeah, yeah. And we have a lot of reader reader stories intermixed in with the text, too. So, um, you know, I think, it, I think it is a fun read. And, uh, um, you know, I, I normally don't like to reread my writing. But mm-hmm. last fall, I went back and re- reread the book. And, uh, and I, I really enjoyed it. So, um, you know, it is pretty polished at this point. Excellent. Well, thanks again. I'm going to let you go. I can go on tangents forever, so let it go with that. And hey, when you bring that cookbook out, I'm going to get you back. All right, good. All right, we'll talk again. All right, thanks, Brian. Thank you. Good night.